this is Ellen Goldsmith, and welcome to Health Currents Radio. Brian Terry infuses vegan eating with spice, with flavor, art, and memory from African traditions that have traveled the world, changing and evolving over time. Brian Terry is a chef, educator, and author renowned for his activism to create a healthy, just, and sustainable food system. Bryant is the author of four books, including his most recent, Afro-Vegan, as well as the Inspired Vegan and the critically acclaimed Vegan Soul Kitchen. Along with Anna LaPay, Bryant co-authored Grub, which the New York Times called Ingenious. He is the host of Urban Organic, a multi-episode web series that he co-created. Bryant's work has been featured in the New York Times, Gourmet, Food and Wine, Oh, the Oprah Magazine, Essence, Yoga Journal, and Vegetarian Times, among many others. He has, made he has made dozens of national television and radio appearances and presents frequently around the country as a keynote speaker. Brian Terry, welcome to Health Currents Radio. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you for having me on. Well, your book, your most recent book, Afro-Vegan, is more than just a marvelous collection of tasty recipes. It's really, when I was reading it, it seemed to me also a call to remember your cultural roots and and to reconnect vegan and plant-based cooking with traditional African diaspora foods. And the question I have, and I think for our listeners, is how and why is this so crucially important to our health? Well, you know, I'm always thinking about infusing, I guess, the vegan food genre with more creative and interesting and delicious recipes. And, and that's always been a mission of mine. But because my work actually started off as a grassroots activist uh, working around food justice issues, uh, the movement to ensure that all communities, regardless of geographic location or income or color, have access to healthy, fresh, affordable, culturally appropriate food. And so that my, my although I'm you know writing cookbooks now and doing a lot of public speaking around these issues. I'm always keeping one eye on the grassroots and, and thinking about uh, the public health crisis that Americans in general are dealing with, uh, directly related to what we're eating, but uh, particularly thinking about the most impacted communities. And uh, given that African Americans have some of the highest rates of hypertension and type 2 diabetes and heart disease and other preventable diet-related illnesses, I really want to ensure that I'm creating recipes and, and, and books and producing knowledge that will help this particular population um, address this public health crisis and, and understanding that, you know, the problem is much bigger than food, but what we're eating is a, a major component uh, to this, this crisis that we're seeing. And so, um, you know, given the growing body of research that is clear that the overconsumption of animal products is contributing to a number of these health-related illness, uh, diet-related illnesses, and that um, eating a plant-centered, vegetable-strong diet can actually be um, a, a very important tool for um, leading a healthy and wholesome life, I really see Afro-Vegan um, kind of in, in the, the spirit of my other books, uh, giving communities a, a tool to just be healthier. The, and these tools seem a lot to me connected to this this idea of memory, uh, of being together in family with others around food traditions. You talk about that a lot. Um, and I, I got that just from the research I did on, on, on the work that you have done and you're doing. And so, you know, the question is, in your book, the, the effort to recreate that memory, but what about the memory that's that's being lost or that is is 
not even being created by an industrialized food system where people aren't even participating in those food traditions. You know, what's the way home to good food, I guess? You know, it's interesting. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. My, my work um, draws on history and memory. Um, certainly the, the history of much of the food throughout the African diaspora uh, before the industrialization of our um, food system, um, having, you know, foundations in, um, you know, kind of plant-centered cooking. If we think about many of the West and Central African diets, uh, which were largely vegetable-based, if we think about, uh, you know, Afro-Caribbean and African-American diets, you know, at their foundation, they're largely uh, vegetable-based. And I think so often when people talk about these cuisines, particularly African-American cuisine, they, they reduce it to uh, the comfort foods of the cuisine, uh, you know, the deep-fried fatty meats, the sugary desserts, the foods that people would often have on holidays and celebrations, uh, but not on a daily basis. And, you know, it's clear that, you know, even having meat on every single plate and every single meal was something that most working class and working poor African Americans couldn't do before the industrialization of our food system. Um, after you know our food system was industrialized and the price uh, of animal products uh, dropped precipitously, then you know people had more access to it. But I really just want people to consider that this type of way of eating is it's not some newfangled hippie, you know, uh, I don't know, just something that I'm trying to create out of thin air. This is, you know, drawing on old food traditions. And I really want people to understand that, you know, it's not that much of a stretch to create a book that celebrates food of the African diaspora uh, that's vegan, because, you know, as I said, so many of these diets uh, were uh, largely vegetable-based. And I think it's important for folks to understand that we have vast resources you know, right here with us, you know, the, the aunties, the, the grandmas and the grandpas who just a couple of generations ago were growing uh, food in their communities, at home gardens, at community gardens, you know, really contributing to uh, local thriving food systems, cooking, you know, just a simple act of cooking. People were cooking back then and not getting so much of their food uh, from, uh, you know, fast food restaurants or having it processed and packaged. And so, you know, my goal is to really use delicious food as a way to kind of titillate people, get people excited about uh, recreating these food traditions. And I, I realize that so many people think that vegetarian and vegan cuisine is bland, boring, and disgusting. And so <laughs> I really no. want that. No, it, it isn't. And, and when you're working with ingredients that are locally grown, whether you're growing them at home or getting them from you know local growers at your farmer's market or your CSA program, um, the food's going to just be amazing. So, you know, that's really what I'm trying to do. Yeah, I mean, you know, when you've lost that that connection to fresh food and you've become addicted to fatty food and comfort food and sugars that come out of carbohydrates and stuff, it's it's a little bit of, you know, you got to step your way along the path to get back, but having delicious food at the end of the at the end of the road is a is a nice thing to look forward to. Yeah, and the thing is, I don't judge people. I totally get it. I mm -hmm. grew up eating farm fresh food, you know, food that my family grew on our farms in rural Mississippi and Tennessee and food that we grew in our backyard gardens in Memphis, Tennessee. And then when I got to high school, I kind of dive, you know, I, I like to say I dove into the industrial uh, food system or, you know, got on the industrial food treadmill and was eating a lot of uh, fast food at the, you know, the Taco Bell that was across the street from um, my high school's campus or eating a lot of, 
whatever sugary snacks and things that I really didn't eat growing up. And I quickly saw the effects. I mean, it, it, it's addictive and um, it has this impact. I mean, we all saw, you know, Morgan Spurlock supersized me and he talked about the way in which his food is engineered just to, to do that um, to us. And so I think it's about meeting people where they are and understanding that, you know, the food and beverage industry spends billions of dollars convincing us to eat those very foods and drink those very beverages that are the worst for us and that are the most addictive. And so it's a process of, um, you know, I really see it as a political act, uh, rejecting the industrial food and, and reclaiming just, you know, simple, whole, home-cooked uh, foods. You know, I really see it as a revolutionary act. Yeah, I agree. It's it it is a completely revolutionary act, and it's so simple. But it actually reconnects us to ourselves, and that seems that's what so strikes me so much about your work and and the book that you've written, because that you know capacity to take those traditions from afar and across time and space and continents and reconnect to your you know um, yourself, you know, the integrity yes. of your of your body and your 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 sense of self is so strong. I think. Yes. It's like, did you ever see that movie, Undercover Brother? Yeah, that was a great movie. <laughs> and you know how Billy D. Williams, is, his mind was stolen by the fast food industry. You know, he, he was running for president and they were looking up to him. And then all of a sudden he became this kind of automaton. And it turned out he would he was being drugged by fast food. So that, that was a fascinating kind of like the, the whole arc of that. Piece of film. I love that. <laughs> I know, I know. And sometimes I think about that when I look at people just, you know, plowing stuff into themselves and they can't help it. You know. Yeah. You know, I, I was talking about being a grassroots activist. Uh, when I started doing this work, I was in New York City um, at NYU. Actually, I moved to New York City to enroll in a PhD program in history and um, learning about the work that the Black Panthers were doing in the um, late 60s and 70s around food access, particularly their free breakfast for children program right. and their grocery giveaways. Um, and, and just the brilliant uh, kind of cutting edge analysis, I would argue, that they had um, that connected, you know, the the poverty, malnutrition, and institutional racism. And so that kind of catalyzed my interest as an adult in doing uh, work around food. But one of the things that moved me was uh, seeing young people in the morning on subways drinking sodas, you know, and eating Red Hot Cheetos and, and eating candy and knowing that this was their breakfast. This wasn't a morning snack. This was what they had to go to school. And, um, you know, just understanding that they were malnourished. While they might have had full bellies, they were certainly malnourished. And um, in the spirit of the Panthers, just really thinking about this whole idea of the simple act of feeding young people um, and, and how revolutionary revolutionary that is, especially in the face of an industrial food system uh, controlled by a few corporations. And so uh, I started an organization called Be Healthy that was aimed at getting young people excited about these issues, but we we knew that we were up against, you know, such great odds. And so we just had to start from the basics and getting them excited about, um, we, we called it kind of raising their food IQ, you know, helping them learn to select uh, raw ingredients, you know, going to urban farms and community gardens and food co-ops and, um, you know, farmer's markets, and then taking them back into the kitchen and having them cook the food. And we saw that if they prepared the food, they were so much more likely to try something that they, under any other circumstance, would not have tried. But the more they tried different
different things, the more that they um, actually got excited about, you know, diversifying their diet. And the, the more they realized that a lot of that other stuff that they were eating, the processed foods and the packaged foods, that it, it's really, it just doesn't taste good when you compare it to real food. Yeah, it's so empowering to to be able to care for yourself and to get food into your body and you feel good and you feel better and you've changed your life. You know, I always say to people in my practice, it's it's the hardest thing to do, but when you feel so much better, you go, wow, that was easy. You yeah. Know? <laughs> Yes. You know, it it brings me to a question. I was talking to a group of people last night, um, some friends, and a woman asked me, she said, the thing I don't understand is why are people who live in poverty who are malnourished so obese? And, you know, I think you just answered it, you know, eating cheap filler food that has no nutritional value, but that adds calories and weight and disease, essentially. Yeah. And, you know, I I always, I, I push back against this notion that eating healthfully or eating a vegetarian or a vegan diet is, um, you know, prohibitively expensive. I, I, I saw a tweet uh, the other day and this woman had, um, you know, said she was interested in getting my book and she wrote that um, she was going to be a vegan if she got rich one day. <laughs> and this whole idea that you have to be, um, you know, affluent to enjoy a vegetarian or vegan or a whole foods or a plant-based diet, I I think is absurd. Now, I I think it's important to recognize that certain communities have very little access to healthy, fresh, affordable food, and we need to keep one eye on addressing that. Right. Those are those food deserts that that exist throughout the country. Yeah, the so-called food deserts. But, you know, when I think about just going to, um, you know, uh, e- even some conventional markets these days that have bulk uh, sections where you can get bulk, um, you know, grains and beans. And if you can get some, you know, in- inexpensive greens and, and different, um, you know, fresh vegetables at the farmer's market or, you know, if you have the, the space to grow it at home or get it from a local community garden, it's actually not that expensive to eat very well. But the, 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 the thing that it does take is discipline and carving out time, um, you know, on the weekends or whenever one can create it to actually prepare the food and ensure that you have uh, food ready you know, at the ready so that you don't have to, you know, spend hours kind of cooking beans from scratch or, you know, doing all the prep. And so, you know, I try to empower people with those tools and understanding that it's also, you know, we have to do it in a community. I think there's this idea capitalism convinces us that everything needs to be done as an individual. And I think it's much more easy to uh, eat healthfully when you're in a community of people who are uh, willing to, you know, kind of pull, pull resources, whether there be like, you know, kitchen kitchens where people can kind of collectively make meals or, you know, buying things in bulk um, and then divvying the ingredients up among, uh, you know, the dishes up among a group of people. And I, I think that is the way that we're really going to kind of dig ourselves out of this, this, this industrial hole, food system hole, and um, get back into a place where we're actually um, feeding each other and taking care of each other. Absolutely. I mean, when when we talk about when you talk about people having those resources and getting into community and having the discipline, then there are also those people who who ha- never had that memory kind of passed down and, and don't know how to cook or, or don't even know how to shop, really. I mean, just how to get ke- how to get those resources so people can can reconnect with that. Yeah, it's a huge problem. And it's interesting. We're in this uh, moment in history where we fetishize food so much, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> you know, we're, people are so enamored of like the, the, uh, cooking competition shows and, yeah. 
you know, while the, the publishing industry is imploding, like food related books and cookbooks are actually, it's a growing market and people are excited about buying these books and watching these television shows. But I think what I found and talking to people across the country is that so many people still are intimidated by the act of cooking. People don't know how to cook. People get um, discouraged sometimes when they see, I don't know, whatever celebrity, celebrity chef creating these interesting dishes and they feel like, well, you know, I've never had a restaurant. I didn't go to culinary school and um i think it's about understanding we all have an inner chef uh the, the process of cooking is about making mistakes and practicing you know uh, it's just it's one of those things that we have to reclaim as a survival tool um and my grandfather used to tell me that if we if you rely on other people to uh you know feed you then in in many ways you're enslaved because the minute they decided that they don't want to feature anymore, you're going to starve. And so um, I, I see cooking, you know, it might sound, uh, I don't know if it sounds far-fetched, but I really see the simple act of cooking as a survival tool. Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. So for in closing, for our listeners, you know, what are some resources or ways that people who are listening to you saying, yes, 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 I want that, I want that, where, where could they go? Like, how how could they connect, reconnect and and you gave us some ideas about community gardens and community kitchens and, and things like that, just to, you know, take back their their food and, and their health, really. Well, you know, just starting, uh, so we could talk about, you know, actually, like, procuring ingredients. And I think that um, it's, it's exciting that farmers markets have been uh, proliferating across the country over the past, you know, decade or so in cities where there, you know, haven't been local producers uh, who are growing food, you know, sustainably bringing their food into the city and providing it for consumers, that's happening a lot more often. And so I encourage people just to, you know, seek out those sources, you know, the farmers markets, uh, community supported agricultural programs, local farms that you might have to travel a bit to. Um, and there is a, a website, localharvest.org, that one can go to and you can type in your zip code and it actually brings up like all the local farmers markets and um, food co-ops and local farms and CSA programs, community supported agriculture for people who um, are familiar with that CSA. And then, um, you know, supporting these people. I mean, I, I think that, you know, I'm not completely against corporate owned um, health food stores or supermarkets, but I think that we need to understand that that's not the answer. It's, it's important to support the independent growers and the independent artisans and the people in our community who are uh, feeding us. You know, um, Malcolm X used to have this uh, saying where he talked about, you know, kind of encouraging people to support local businesses. And he talked about when you have someone from another community um, coming to, you know, your community and opening a business and you support that business, at the end of the day, that, that person is going home and taking that bag of money back to their community. And when we, you know, only support uh, the, the food, you know, kind of like the corporate-owned supermarkets and health food stores, then the money is going back to some corporate headquarters. But when we support, you know, local farmers, they're getting nice. 90 cents of every dollar. And, you know, we have that multiplier effect where the dollar actually circulates in our communities five or six or seven or eight times before it actually leaves the community. And, um, you know, it's, it's supporting local and regional economies. But in addition to that, the food's just so much fresher and, and delicious and flavorful when it's 
you know, harvested that morning or harvested the day before and, and not shipped across the country from the West Coast, as most of the food in this country is. So I just think that as a, a first step of identifying local um, food producers and supporting them. But then and going back to this whole thing around preparing food, um, you know, at home, I think we need to uh, take advantage of the resources in our communities. You know, there's there are plenty of older people who know how to cook, who've been doing it all their lives. And I think we need to, um, you know, have these intergenerational exchanges and connect with the elders and, and, and learn from them about growing food, about cooking food, um, and, and um, really building community around the table. And I, I've always argued that faith-based institutions can be some of, some of the most powerful uh, sites for transforming our food system, especially given, um, you know, that so many people are part of these communities. And, you know, I, I think that it, it needs to go beyond just kind of feeding people's spirit. And there's so many opportunities to uh, share these skills, to create spaces in which people can actually learn how to feed themselves better and, and uh, take care of themselves. And so, um, you know, building community around the table, I think, is kind of the, the I don't know, elevator synopsis that I would give about what we need to do. Yeah. So people can call up their grandma and their aunts and their uncles and, you know, find out what those traditions were, too, in their family so they can get those recipes before they are gone. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, because the thing is, you know, I, I think it's important for people of African descent to eat uh, food from the African diaspora, but I also think everyone should be eating their ancestral foods. I think that is a vital component to what um, it means to eat um, a healthy diet, um, eating the foods that our, our, our grandparents and our, um, you know, their parents and, and, and beyond that. So ancestral eating, you know, ancestral foods, I think, is, is really important as well. Absolutely. Well, Brian Terry, thank you so much for the work that you're doing out there in the world with people. And, and thank you for being with us today on Health Currents Radio. I really enjoyed our interview. Thank you so much for having me on. That's all for our show today. I'm Ellen Goldsmith, and I want to thank our sponsor, Pearl Natural Health, a naturopathic acupuncture and Chinese medicine clinic in downtown Portland, Oregon. You can find Pearl Natural Health at pearlnaturalhealth.com. Make sure you tune in next week when Brian Terry joins us again and shares some delicious recipes from his book, Afro-Vegan. You can always listen to Health Currents Radio and find all of our past shows at healthcurrentsradio.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes. Find us on the mobile app Stitcher. Connect with us on Twitter at Pearl Natural or like us on facebook.com at Health Currents Radio. We want to know how you are transforming your life through your health.